Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to episode 118 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, we will be covering true crime and paranormal from the state. What state? Of Oregon. (laughs) Oregon. (laughs) I was so prepared. It was flowing really well. Okay, in my defense, though, my guy is in a few states. So yeah, whatever. that's why I kind of spaced. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I have the true crime this week. Mom has the paranormal and the beverage. The beverage. And my beverage is called Never Say Die. Ooh. <laughs> that was a weird ooh. <laughs> wasn't spooky. It wasn't. I don't know what it was. Ooh. <laughs> And you'll know why I picked the name of that cocktail. Why well, I didn't pick the name, but why I picked the cocktail. <laughs> and it is, it's kind of tiki-like. You know what I mean? Like you go to a tiki no. room. No. It's kind of. Tiki room. Like a tiki bar? Yeah. Like a, yeah, like like a, a tropical beverage? Like a tiki bar. Yeah. And it's kind of a tiki kind of drink. <laughs> so, what an interesting word. It is, it is very good. It's very rum. It's very rummy, but we like rum. <laughs> So, never say die. It's a half an ounce of honey mix. Now, I have to say, I don't have honey what mix. What is that? What's honey mix? I don't know, but I just used honey. <laughs> <laughs> just substitute out the mix. It calls for honey mix. I called honey. Okay. A half an ounce lime juice, a half an ounce OJ, a half an ounce grapefruit, one ounce gold rum, a half an ounce light rum, and a half an ounce dark Jamaican rum. You mix that all with ice. Rum, rum, rum. And you dump it into a glass. And then you suck it down. <laughs> this is our second week in a row with grapefruit. Oh. We did grapefruit last week. I know. Yeah. Well, it's pretty good. It's pretty rummy. It's pretty tiki-like. I don't know what you mean by tiki like I'm just say tropical right <laughs> nah, it's not really tropical I, I don't know but it's good it's luscious so tiki is just another way of saying it's good it's good it's it's refreshing you know it doesn't have too much sweet well it has the honey but it doesn't have too much sweet mm. yes and that is from the bgreynolds.com okay well cheers mom cheers darling uh, yes, listeners, we are doing this virtually once again. Hopefully next time we record, we will be doing it together. We always have so much more fun when we do it in person. <laughs> we do. Uh, instead of sitting alone in our offices. Well, I got Obi with me, but I'm alone and I don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> School is starting soon and then I'll really be alone except for the baby, but that's okay. And then I'll miss them. Let's be honest. Yeah. Then I'll miss them. <laughs> So, 
patrons know this, and I think we posted a few times on our social media about it, but we took a trip for mom's 60th, and I know we mentioned it on a past episode that we were going to take the trip, but we took a trip, mom took a trip, really, a long road trip across the country, basically, and the West Coast, and then my sister and I hopped on a plane and Mom and her sister picked us up in Portland, and then we drove and we hung out in Astoria for a long weekend, and it was such a fun trip. So much fun. So much Seriously, fun. Seriously, call y'all's moms and go on a road trip. It's It was really fun. Well, I don't know about driving cross-country. I don't know if I could have survived that with you, but with Obi on my lap. <laughs> well, you would have been in the front had that happened. <laughs> But it was a really, really great time. I had so much fun. And we did a lot of ghost stuff. And, you know, we kept to the theme. It is quite the theme in our lives. And we pulled pulled our respective sisters along with us. Although Katie was excited. (laughs) My sister was very excited. My sister had no clue what we were doing at all. Hey, she she was a trooper, though. She was. She honestly, she was all for it (laughs) patrons got to see a kind of homemade video of our trip we had a really good time i put a little snippet of it on our social media so you can catch i think i posted like three minutes of the video but anyway anyway beth get to the point so because we made that trip we wanted to make sure that we did cover oregon Oregon. so here we are (laughs) here we are okay so are you ready mom i'm ready beth my tiki drink. <laughs> a tiki drink is going to go straight to her head. When do we? It, it, yeah, it is. When do we? <laughs> a little announcement before we start, but. Oh, drum roll. Drum roll. That was horrible. <laughs> Mine sounded like a helicopter trying to take off. We've decided to stick to the every other week for our episodes. I hope we're not letting anybody down. It's really worked out for all of our schedules and it just we get a lot more research done this way. We're not rushed with I mean, just a reminder, it is just us on this podcast. (laughs) We have no producers or writers or anything. It's just little old me sitting at home with my three kids running around like psychopaths while I try to edit these episodes, because believe me, we are not perfect. (laughs) And there's a lot of editing that needs to be done. Oh, Beth, we need to release another blooper. We do. So talking about blooper reels, we will be putting out an episode to our patrons every week. So you'll get the regular episode. And then the following week, you'll get a special Patreon only episode from us. Uh, You guys have been getting a lot of really cool interviews and videos of our travels and a lot of really neat stuff. This every other week will also allow us to do that. Yeah, we're not going to be so scrapped for time. And then we get to also have some time now to take some trips that we've been wanting to take for paranormal investigations. Yeah. Spooky time is around the corner. Yep. Yep. And we want to get those lined up so we can do the investigations. Plus, we've got the holidays coming up. I have another darn surgery coming up. So it's I think this is going to work better. At least for now, at least until the end of the year. Let's just tell you guys that. But it'll be every other week. And, 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 and. Episodes are going to be a little longer, I think, uh, because we're going to have more time to do research. 
for all of our stuff. So, but yeah, if you just can't live without Beth and Bettina, you can always join our Patreon where you can get more hangovers. $5 a month. $5 a month. That's all. And we really do appreciate it. Like that really does help us because beautiful cocktails do not come cheap. They ain't cheap, man. (laughs) Uh, Okay. What do you got for us? Okay. This is one of those cases that makes me so impressed with law enforcement. Honestly, it's one of those, how the heck did you get him for all of that kind of a situation? Great. There are so many cases, a trail of cases across the I-5 corridor out in Washington State and Oregon. But there is such a range of them. There's robberies, sexual assaults, attempted kidnappings, and homicides. It's just such this broad thing that's like, how did you get one guy for all of these different things? So this is my warning. There are a lot of cases with sexual assaults. So if that's triggering for you in any way, please feel free to skip ahead 30 minutes or so to the lighter portion of the episode, mom's paranormal portion. I will not be offended. I totally understand. You take care of you. Uh, Mom, I'm sorry you're stuck with me. Thanks for the break, honey. (laughs) I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to take a gulp and jump right in. December 9th, 1980 in Vancouver, Washington, a female attendant is working at a gas station off I-5. Out of nowhere, a man walks in, pointing a gun at her. He is a tall man of athletic build, dark hair, wearing a hooded jacket, and what is noticeably a fake beard. He demands she opens the register and give him the money inside. She does as he says. He then instructs her to turn around, and within seconds, the man is gone. Just four days later, December 13th, this time in Eugene, Oregon, also just off the I-5, there is a holdup at an ice cream parlor. The suspect with the same description as the Vancouver robbery, a tall man, athletic build, young, maybe late 20s, with a fake beard. And this victim says she notices a band-aid or maybe a piece of tape across the man's nose. The very next day in Albany, Oregony, Oregony, wow. <laughs> Tiki, tiki, tiki. Okay. The very next day in Albany, Oregon, off the I-5, there is a robbery at a drive-in restaurant. The man matches the same description as the prior two. December 21st, still in the I-5 corridor, Seattle, Washington, just before 9 p.m., a waitress at a restaurant goes to use the restroom. She is washing her hands when a man walks in. He says, excuse me, but he doesn't turn to leave. Instead, he turns, locks the door behind him, and points a gun to the woman's head. Oh my gosh. The man forces her to perform a sexual act, then orders her to stay in the restroom and count to 100 as he leaves. She counts, but stays in the restroom even longer before screaming for help. A report is made, and by that following month, January 1981, police are starting to put these cases together. The man gets named the I-5 Bandit. He is described the same way by all the women in these robberies or assaults. Tall, dark, and handsome. I hate to say that, but that was his description. How do they know that with that fake beard on? With a beard, you don't can't tell if he's handsome or not. It's a fake beard. Like it's it's very noticeably fake. Okay. But and don't think like this big scruffy thing. Oh. It's like 
It's just a fake dangly like Santa beard that you can tell if somebody is tall. I know the beard athletic is- build. They're very fit. The beard isn't hiding his height. I know that. Well, yeah, I know that. <laughs> he's not fat. He's not frumpy. He's, he's fit. Old. He's in his 20s and he's very fit. Okay. He has a small silver gun of some kind and he wears a noticeably fake beard and a piece of tape or a band-aid covering the bridge of his nose. Oh. January 8th, 1981. He robs the same gas station as before in Vancouver. This time, after emptying the cash register, he demands the attendant expose her breasts to him. It goes on. Just three days later, he robs a market in Eugene, Oregon. The day after that, he robs a grocery store in Sutherland, Oregon, this time shooting and wounding the clerk in the shoulder. He made out with $300 from this robbery which I looked into because I was interested with inflation and everything, but that's equivalent to about $978 today. Wow. So that was a large haul from that robbery. Now, like I said, the cashier did survive this shooting, and there was another witness that claimed to have seen a VW bug parked outside around the time of the attack. Now, this is the first we hear of a vehicle. Most of the attacks were like the first. He seemed to appear out of nowhere. And this kind of led police to believe that he was parking elsewhere and then walking to the location Mm -hmm. uh, because he wasn't seen parking and getting out of a car. He wasn't even seen getting back into a car after these robberies. So the VW bug was just kind of like a listed suspicion that that was seen. So maybe that was his. But. And as you can see, and we hear all too often, these crimes seem to be progressing. So first you have robberies, and then you have sexual assaults, and now you have him shooting people. Right. January 18th. So just a week after the grocery store shooting, there's a call into the police station a little before 10 p.m. It is a woman on the other line, short of breath, very weak, claiming, quote, we've been shot, unquote. The call was traced to the Trans-American Title Building, a small business office complex. Police and ambulance rushed to the scene. Although the woman on the phone was worried the shooter was still in the building, police rushed in to save her. The woman was Beth Wilmont, who lay on the ground, blood in her matted hair. She had been shot twice in the head. Oh my gosh. She was weak, but was rushed to the hospital where she was saved. Her co-worker, her best friend, Sherry Hall, would not be so lucky. The two worked after hours in the offices, cleaning them as part of their part-time job to pay for college. It was a Sunday night, and the two were just finishing up. Sherry had unlocked the front doors to start bringing items to the car. When she came back in, a man with a silver gun followed her in. He led the women to the back room where he ordered them to remove their clothing and he sexually assaulted them. He then ordered them to lay face down on the ground. He stood over them, shooting Sherry in the head and then Beth, then Sherry again, then Beth again, Oh, and then Sherry. Beth believed the only reason she was not shot the third time, like Sherry, was because after the first shot, she had lay still and pretended to be dead. And... A lot of resources actually claimed that 
just by happenstance, her bone density, she had really a really thick skull. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. And I don't even, I just thought everybody's bones were the same, but she has really dense bones. She had a really thick skull and that saved her. She was shot twice in the head. Jeez, Louise. Now at this scene, police do get some evidence, but not a lot because the main objective when police obviously arrived with medical was to save the lives of Beth and Sherry. So a lot of the crime scene was contaminated because they came in and they thought maybe the shooter was still in the building. So you have police kind of running from floor to floor trying to see if the shooter was still in the building. And then you have the medical personnel running in with the ambulance, trying, you know, coming, trying to save the women and bring the women onto the ambulance. So you have all of these people on the scene right away because the first thing to do is try to save these women. So the whole scene was really contaminated. But they do find what they believed was a hair that belonged to the shooter, which this is an office building. So I guess they ran tests on all of the medical personnel and all the police officers Mm -hmm. to test against the hair. But they really thought that this was the hair of the shooter. So I'm wondering if they even tested everybody that worked in the office, too. They must have to rule people out. I just thought that that was crazy. One hair. Was that the only DNA they found? So they found uh, one hair. And then they also found that the killer's blood type was type B, which eliminated a lot of, which eliminates a lot of the male population. Um, From some resources, they said that they got this because he was a blood secretor. So... We've said this before on other episodes, but his blood type was found in his semen. Mm -hmm. And I think this is super strange because this is super, super rare that you're a secretor. And we've talked about at least two other killers (laughs) that were secretors. So I don't know if it's as rare as people say it is or... (laughs) Or maybe it's just killers that have it. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) don't say that. Uh, They also found a bullet on the scene. So from the five shots that he took, they found all the bullets, obviously, but they found one bullet that was in really good condition. And it showed that it was from a 32 caliber weapon, which helped them narrow down the type of gun that was used. Mm-hmm. They also had the living witness, Beth, who would later, later give them the description of the man when she heals. But so right now they're not thinking about the I-5 bandit in this investigation. This is not really even flit his MO. He didn't rob anything. This is just... A this man off the street plain, that came flat in. Sexual assault. Yes. This and and this is a homicide. Mm-hmm. This didn't match the pattern of the I five bandit. Uh it wouldn't be until a, a week or so later, as Beth recovered and gives them more details on the assailant that they matched the man to the other crimes. He have a beard on too? I think he did. And, like, some resources even said that in some of these robberies, it wasn't necessarily a fake beard, but, like, a fake mustache. And and I say that it was very noticeably fake. Like, one of the crimes, it was just dangling off his ear. Oh, jeez. It wasn't even... So, what I think is that it wasn't necessarily used to, I have a beard. It was really used as a deterrent. Like, if you, somebody, if you see somebody wearing a fake beard... Listen, you're not going to necessarily look at all their features. You're going to be looking at this. The beard. Very apparent fake beard. So as a distraction. Exactly. But before they match him as the I-5 bandit, 
just 10 days after this attack on Beth and Sherry, there start to be more robberies that are tied to the I-5 bandit. More robberies in Eugene, Medford, and Grants Pass, where at the latter, a clerk and her customer were both sexually assaulted at gunpoint. Jeez. The crimes progressed, and this one is hard. On February 3rd, off I-5 in Redding, California, 12-year-old Kristen called her mother, who was at home in the early evening. Kristen had stayed late after school for a basketball game and was calling to see if she could stay at a friend's for dinner. Her mom, Donna, allowed her to. A little while later, Donna made a list of items she needed at the local market for breakfast, and she wrote a check for the market. She gave the check to her oldest daughter, 14-year-old Janelle, to go to the market for the items. Janelle never made it to the market. When Kristen arrived home later that night, she discovered her mother and her sister. Both had been shot and sexually assaulted. They know she didn't make it to the market because the blank check was in her pocket. Still. Oh, jeez. Later, the autopsy would show that Janelle had been shot a total of seven times Holy with smokes. a 32 caliber weapon. And I'm not going to go into the description of the sexual assault, but just he's a horrible human being. Again, this crime is not being traced to the I-5 bandit. I mean, why would it? It's so different. This is a break in at a private home, a private residence. And again, it's a homicide. But later, it would be. Interestingly enough, on that exact same day, February 3rd, 1981, in Redding, California, the I-5 bandit kidnapped and raped a store clerk. The next day, he did the same thing to a woman in a nearby motel. Jeez. Five days after that, February 9th, a fabric store clerk and a customer were molested. Just a few days after that, the pattern continued in Olympia, Bellevue, and Vancouver, Washington. In Olympia and Bellevue, there were three sexual assaults. This was becoming serious. This man was becoming more and more of a threat. And there's no time between these. I mean, no. heck, one of the biggest crimes, three, happened in one day. Now, to be clear, because this is happening in such a broad area covering so many jurisdictions. Some police are searching for the I-5 bandit, and other areas are searching for the I-5 killer. Police, though, are starting to put things together and realizing that this man is one in the same. The jurisdictions begin to work together, which at the time was a newer thing, and they come up with a profile for this man, a psychological profile. He's a male Caucasian, who has a macho image of himself, possibly recently divorced or separated, recently released from penal or mental institution. He's a loner. He's described as a nice guy, so not necessarily a suspect by his friends or his neighbors. They believe that the motivation to all of these crimes was sexual. Although, yes, he was robbing these places, they don't think that this was his initial intention. Things to note. He has not hit Portland or Multnomah County. He does not like locations with men. He hits within early evening hours. All crimes fell between the hours of 540 and 11 o'clock. Never outside of that window. He wears a band-aid or what many described as tape across his nose. This would be ripped off as he fled in a lot of situations. 
Now, this tape is interesting because tape was also used when he would bind his victims. He would use tape, which is really weird because obviously you usually use rope or something, but he would use tape. And then the tape on his nose, they thought that maybe, okay, there's one of two things here. It's like the beard and it's a deterrent. So you see tape on somebody's nose, you're going to be constantly looking at this piece of tape. Like, why the heck do you have tape on your nose? Or he wore glasses regularly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. It would cover the fact that he did wear glasses. Right. So there's, police didn't know, but he wore tape on his nose. And that kind of goes along, too, with the fake beard, that if it is just used as a deterrent with tape on his nose and a fake beard, like, it's just kind of distracting them Uh, like I mentioned they believed that he parked one to four blocks away because he was never seen beforehand also along those lines he was never seen beforehand so it's not like he was casing the place before these attacks it's almost as if he was traveling he's a regular traveler on the I-5 and so maybe on Tuesday he stops for gas at this place And he just kind of makes a mental note. Okay, it's a Tuesday and it's at six o'clock and there's only one chick here working. So he just kind of makes a mental note. So then he knows next time he's kind of in the area, he'll just go. But it's not like he's casing the place. Wow. So in a way, he kind of lucked out with no men being there. I don't know. I kind of walk away from that thinking he didn't. So like Tuesday, he goes to the gas station. He sees, oh, there's just one chick working here. So then one Tuesday, as he's making that same trip down the I-5 or what have you, He's like, oh, yeah, it's Tuesday. Oh, it's around that time. Let's go see if that chick is working. So it's almost like he kind of had a plan, but he kind of didn't. Because I wonder if he would have walked in and there was a guy working, he would have just paid for his gas and left. Oh, right. Or and how bought many, a candy bar and just left. And how many times did he do that? We don't know. Right, right. But along with that, the profile said that he always picked locations where young girls worked or most likely worked. A fabric store a grocery store, a ice cream parlor. And again, he's not going late at night because who usually has the late night shifts at gas stations? Most of the time. Man. Mm -hmm. So that also kind of fits into that window of time. All the females were between the ages of 13 and 23 uh, that were sexually assaulted. Older females, he would fondle. He spoke softly but in was never verbally abusive. No drugs or alcohol were ever suspected. He never smelt of alcohol or anything. He always wore gloves. They said that they looked like driving gloves with holes in the back of them, but he may take them off to fondle. And he always made his victims count to 100 as he was leaving the scene. Again, the main motive was sexual assault. And yes, sometimes he would rob, but it's not like he robbed and it progressed to sexual. They think that from the beginning, the sexual aspect of it was his intention. Oh, And really? robbing was just kind of icing on the cake for him. Yeah. And like some of them, some of the cases were just robbery, but maybe he read the situation and knew that he needed to just get in and get out. So he's like, I'm just going to rob. Or it was practice maybe to see how long he could have in a place. And kind of get feelings for how long he could be somewhere. And I, and again, I hate saying this, but he was described as handsome. And I thought that was interesting. But on True Crime Garage, on their episode covering this case, they mentioned that one victim, she was asked, 
was there anything suspicious or out of the ordinary before this attack? And she said, yeah, there was this dirty younger guy that came in. He was had a very threatening appearance. And he said something along the lines of, you know, this would be an easy place to rob. And she was like really on edge with this guy. He left. And then shortly after that, this handsome tall man, clean cut, comes in and her guard is down because of his appearance. Oh, and then he's the one that ends up robbing her. Wow. Did that happen? Not every place. That just was one place that happened. Right. That was just one place. That's interesting. So there is word out to look for this man. It's sent out to all of the jurisdictions. Do you have a case or a man that matches this description? And again, the big homicides like of Donna and Janelle, they aren't even on the minds of police as being I-5 bandit. Another case that's similar to that was on February 15th. 18-year-old Julie Wrights leaves a party around 2 a.m. and headed home to Southwest Cherry Hill Drive in Beaverton, Oregon. She lived there with her mom. Her mom was out of town that night. The next day when Julie's mom returns home, she finds her daughter was dead. An eyewitness, a neighbor, said the only thing out of the ordinary that they saw was a VW bug driving up and down the street that night. Oh. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, I am just so impressed with the detective work in this case in particular. They interviewed over 150 people. 150 people. All of Julie's friends and family. 150 people. And from them, they walked away with no suspect. So they believed that who killed Julie was somebody that knew her. Because when they found her, she was naked in the, in the house. But she was found with two wine glasses, a bottle of wine with two wine glasses. And when she was attacked, she was making coffee. There was instant coffee on the counter and a kettle of water heating up on the stove and two coffee cups. Wow. She was obvious she obviously had this person in the house, so she knew this person, mm-hmm. right? So because she knew this person, they interviewed everybody that she was friends with, family, friends, everybody. It was a hundred over a hundred and fifty freaking people. Because she obviously had to have known this person. And nobody. No, nobody. So then they're like, okay, well, maybe this person was somebody she knew, obviously, but she was this person was on the outskirts of her close friends like a secret just, almost no not necessarily a secret but just somebody that was not super super close you see what i'm saying like kind of mm-hmm. on the outskirts of being a, a close friend that somebody would associate her with mm-hmm. I mean, she obviously knew this person but maybe this person was new in her life or just on the outskirts of those that were close to her now of those 150 people two or three of them Give the police the name of a man that may just fit that description, Randall Woodfield. The two had met and knew each other from a local Portland bar called The Faucet. Randall had worked there as a bouncer, and the friends believed he may have taken her out on a date, maybe, but she wasn't interested in in him at all that much. And some resources said that she was actually underaged. Obviously, she was 18 and he was the bouncer. And so he let her into the bar a couple times, I think. And then some resources said that she worked in the bar, but they were just acquaintances. Either way, just acquaintances. And they maybe went on a date, but he was very persistent in asking her to go on a date. He was very interested in her. One of the people that gave Randall's name to the police believed that he had even 
had a record and had been arrested for robberies or assaults prior to working as a bouncer. So by February 28th, about two weeks into the investigation, police start to look into Randall Woodfield. Now, I want to make mention for the other victims at stake here, but by this time, the I-5 bandit had already made three more attacks and sexual assaults in Eugene and Corvallis. And again, they are not even thinking these cases and the I-5 bandit had anything to do with Julie's murder. But as you know, they are one in the same. Police head to Eugene and meet with Randall. Randy. They ask him, do you know Julie Wrights? He's like, "Mm, no, I can't place that name. And they're like, "Mm, okay, really? (laughs) Why don't you come into the station and have a chat with us then? I mean, they have proof otherwise. And now they have him at the station questioning him over the murder of Julie Wrights and if he knew her. At first, he's cooperating. And then he starts to kind of get weird. They want to test his hair and blood and give him a polygraph. And he's like, oh, sure, 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 sure. But then as they sit down to do it, he's like, well, I want my attorney. And they're like, "Mm, okay, now you look suspicious. But okay, what's your attorney's name, number? And he's like, well, maybe we don't need to involve him. He does eventually admit to knowing her. And when they show him a photo, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know her. But he just goes back and forth and back and forth. And while this is happening, they're, of course, digging more and more into his past. Well, they discover he is on probation and he had a parole officer. This from a second degree robbery. And all of his crimes had a sexual aspect to them. They're like, my gosh, we have to have our murderer. Now, he was not living where he had told his parole officer he was living. Oh, that's a violation right there. Exactly. This gave police reason that they needed to hold him so they could do more digging. His parole officer also informed them that he had been looked at and questioned in other homicides months ago. Sherry Ayers, she had known and grown up with Randy since the second grade. She was found bludgeoned and stabbed. They had written letters back and forth while he was in prison, but he was told that his blood type did not match what was there at the crime scene, so there were no charges. And then there was Darcy Fix. She was an ex-girlfriend of an old friend of Randy's. She was found on the evening of Thanksgiving by her father. She never made it to Thanksgiving dinner, so he went over to check on her. She was found with her fiancé, both shot dead, execution style. They were also bound with tape. Darcy's revolver was missing from the scene, but there was no concrete evidence that it was Randy, so he was let go. But now police have him. Maybe they can really get him this time. Now, who is Randall Woodfield? He was born December 26, 1950. His mom was a homemaker and his father was an executive at Pacific Northwest Bell, the phone company, which is ironic in one of the ways they end up catching Randy. But I'll get there. He was the youngest and the only boy in the family. He had two older sisters. And here is where his issues and maybe his only issues of his childhood lay. One sister grew up to be a doctor and the other a lawyer. So he felt felt inferior. Yeah, that's basically his only issue. Other than that, he had a great childhood. He grew up in a small town in a very good family. He had a very stable home life and childhood. He was very athletic. He was very popular because he was very athletic. 
he was the football star growing up. He also played basketball and baseball, but he was the football star. Starting in junior high, into high school, which would eventually lead him to college, and then into the NFL. Wow. Yes, you heard that correctly. He was drafted in 1974 in the 17th round as the 428th pick to the Green Bay Packers. Oh, no, the Packers. <laughs> Some of you listening may know or you may not. Um, those that know are like, wow, the 17th round. OK, yes. Nowadays, there's only like seven rounds. I, don't, I didn't know about this. stuff. OK, so in the NFL draft, there's only seven rounds nowadays. And that's because there's so many more teams. Back then in 74, there was less teams. So he was the 17th round and he was the 428th pick. So football was just much different then. I'm not saying he wasn't a good athlete, but compared to today's athletes, football players in particular, he was nothing. Like, so don't think, you know, he was drafted. Like, mm. Okay. Uh, I think his scouting report said that he ran a 4.7 in the 40-yard dash. And I think they said on True Crime Garage that, like, the national average salary income back then in the 70s was thirteen dollars to $14,000 a year. And his salary was 16000 for football. So it's not even... Like a buttload of money. I mean, he was still drafted by the NFL. He was still drafted for the Green Bay Packers. And he was drafted as a line receiver. Here's the thing, though. Backing up to junior high, he started, well, he started exposing himself. And this went into high school. So much so that he was arrested for it at some point. Now, depending on your sources, it is believed that this was covered up by his football coaches because they wanted him to play. Interesting. Ooh. His parents did send him to therapy for it. They wanted their son to get help. But in the community, it was covered up so much so that when he graduated from high school, his record was expunged. Wow. Well, they had an NFL star in their town. So that was big news. But the exposing didn't stop there. It happened in college as well. Although he was very active in the Christian community at Portland State, the Campus Crusade for Christ... He was very active in that on campus. He was also known as polite and quiet, which if you remember the, the psychological profile the police made on the I-5 bandit, friends and those close to him would never suspect him. Right. And it sounds like that's definitely Randy Woodfield. Now, again, according to resources, his issue with exposing himself still continued into his NFL career and may have been the reason he was cut from the team in 75. So regardless, he was signed under contract in 74 and was cut after training camp. <laughs> Whoops. He played for their farm team for a while after that, but then they officially cut him. And many say it was because of his issues of exposing himself for what have you. That is such a weird issue. I'm sorry. i now, he dropped out of college to be drafted by the NFL. So now his dreams of football are over. He doesn't have a degree and he's got this underlying sexual issue. So he returns to Portland and the real problems start. Yeah. In a park in Portland, female walkers were being attacked at knife point. Their money was taken and they were sexually assaulted. This went on long enough that police got an undercover female officer. And I mean, 
wow, she had to be super brave because this was going on so much that she knew at some point it was going to happen to her. She was going to get attacked. Like, how brave do you have to be to literally throw yourself in the lion's den like that? But she goes in and they gave her numbered bills. Now, I don't know if she got him or if they tracked the numbered bills and she had been attacked. I don't know. Nothing really clarified that. Like resources weren't clear if she had been attacked and so they got him from the numbered bills or if she saved herself and got him. But eventually he was caught. He was charged with robbery and sexual assault. He pled guilty to reduce his charges. He was sentenced to 10 years and he served four and a half. Ah, hate to hear that. I guess he was a good prisoner, which is such an oxymoron to me. But the only thing he got written up for while he was a prisoner was because he didn't wear the prison's uniform. <laughs> I guess somebody sent him some basketball shoes, which he said he needed because he had bad ankles oh and he was gosh. wearing basketball shoes. So he got written up for that. But that's like the only bad thing I guess he did in prison. So police learn all of this. And now they have him at the station questioning him over the murder of Julie Wrights. While they have him there uh, is what is called a teletype was sent out to all the jurisdictions. And this was from the description they officially got from the living witness of the I-5 bandit, Beth. Okay. And it listed the man's the man's description, height, dark hair, dark eyes, hooded jacket, jeans, the tape on his nose, and the fake beards, the small silver revolver, and sad eyes. And this is how many of his victims described him. Uh, it's something that Beth said of his eyes. There was a coldness, a detachment. It was something that none of them could forget. Many hits came in. Most all of the robberies and sexual assaults I listed came in with the same descriptions. So now they're starting to match everything. And then after a photo lineup was sent with Randall Woodfield's photo, it was sent to the surviving victims. Lisa Garcia was first to identify him as the I-5 bandit. And then he was positively identified as the I-5 killer. Even Beth identified him. And now the puzzle is all fitting together, which again, I find just so amazing because at the beginning, they aren't looking for the same guy in any of these different cases, right? but the pieces are all coming together. March 7th, police get a search warrant for Randy's apartment in Eugene, Oregon. Here are just a few things they found. A spent 32 caliber shell in a racquetball bag, along with racquetball gloves that look just as many as the victims described. Like driver's gloves. Mm -hmm. With holes in the back. And these racquetball gloves look just like that. They also found a box with rolls of tape. I mean, several adhesive rolls of tape. Some resources described it as athletic tape, which makes sense because he was an athlete. But others just said adhesive tape. And he was chill with the search. He was fine until they found the tape and they really started to show interest in this tape. And he's like, uh, it's just tape. Why do you care so much? It's just tape. But after testing this tape, it's not only the same kind of tape that was used on the victims, but the places where the tape was torn mm-hmm. matched, uh. matched perfectly. By March 16th was the indictment. He was indicted for rape, illegal possession of firearms, murder, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery. And this was initiated in multiple jurisdictions, Washington and Oregon. Was there anything that he didn't get indicted for? 
I know, seriously. In the summer of 1981, he is tried for the murder and attempted murder of Beth and her best friend, Sherry. Beth sat and testified against him in trial. It took the jury three and a half hours to convict Randall Woodfield to life plus 90 years. Nice. Fun, fun little side note, but Chris Van Dyke, the son of Dick Van Dyke, was the county district attorney and he prosecuted this case. He characterized Woodfield as the coldest, most detached defendant he had ever seen. There was a second trial in October 1981 for the victim that was attacked in the restroom. He received another 35 years for that case. Before that case went to trial, though, his attorneys really tried to push to have the trial moved to another county because of all the negative media attention. And they thought that would affect the conviction. They also wanted a witness to be put under hypnosis before they went on the stand to see if they were influenced by the media. (laughs) The judge denied this. And like I said, he got added more time to his already life sentence. The states of Oregon and Washington didn't do any more trials for him. They were very happy with the life in prison sentence he had already received at Oregon State Penitentiary. Despite all the other links, he has not been prosecuted for the majority of the crimes he was believed to have committed. I hope that the victims have some kind of closure, although he wasn't tried for their personal cases. Just knowing that he's going to be in prison for life. He's going to die there. I hope that that gives, yeah, I hope that gives them some peace. There is not an exact number of victims. I saw numbers between 18 to 44 victims of Randall Woodfields. He, of course, claims he is innocent, going as far as suing the author and rule for writing the book The I-5 Killer. It's listed as a number one New York bestseller. I already have it in my Amazon cart for a future read. (laughs) I've heard it's really good. He didn't like it, of course, so he tried to sue her. It never went to trial. In 2001 and 2006, DNA did link him to two additional murders from Oregon in 80 and 81. Gosh. And that's another scary thing. Most of this horrendous crimes happened in just a span of 11 months. All of this happened in the span of 11 months. What? Really? All the crimes. Mm-hmm. You kind of lose. That I listed. You kind of lose track of dates and stuff after a while, but 11 months? Mm-hmm. So who knows what happened outside of that 11 months? No kidding. Think like so. his small town covered up for him exposing his wiener to everybody. What else was covered up? Not his wiener. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in 2011, there is a Lifetime movie about him, of course. It's called Hunt for the I-5 Killer. In February, these are just some little like facts I wanted to throw out there, but I thought this was interesting. You may not care, but February 14th, 2021, Stephanie Holman, you have no idea who she is, but she's uh, Real Wives of Dallas. Um, She said that her husband was babysat by Woodfield Ew. as a kid. Yeah. She like casually mentioned it in this like loving Valentine's Day post on Instagram. <laughs> it said, quote, you are the only person I have ever met who was babysat by a serial killer and made it out alive. I love you. <laughs> I love you. Well, it doesn't sound like he had much problem with men. How many men did he kill? Well, one 
for sure the fiance of the young woman that was found on Thanksgiving. Um, Off the top of my head, I'm sorry, but that's the only one I can think of that they know of. Majority was obviously females. Yeah. I wonder if when he was exposing himself, whether it was just females. True. Because... Like I said, he was sexually assaulting younger women, but if they were over the ages of like twenty five, he would just fondle them. So he, uh, it, it just, I don't, I don't know, mom. He's definitely just. There's another book out there. Shoot, I should have written it down. I think it's called like something like Letters of a Serial Killer, but it's like literal letters from killers that are in prison. This author would write back and forth with these killers, and then she published the letters. And his letters, basically, he's just saying he didn't do it. He's innocent. Just a question. He Did he start doing this before he ever started playing football? He was exposing himself in junior high. Yes. And yeah, did he, he was exposing himself growing up. And then they think he was let go from football from exposing himself. Right. I got that. But I was just wondering, it, would, it wouldn't have been a football injury. You know how these concussions are causing all kinds of mental, I strange mental things. I see what you're saying. Um, he actually said that like the attacks in the park in Portland after he was let go from the NFL or from Green Bay, uh, he said that he was having these sexual issues because of the steroids he was on. For football. Well, but when did he start exposing himself? When it like, was it grade school? It was junior high. It was junior so, high. But I think he, he blamed the sexual assaults in the park in Portland. On a steroid. 75 on his use of steroids. Oh, I don't know. There was something. Right. And that's, it's like nature versus nurture in the situation. It wasn't, a, he had a good childhood. I mean, he had a really good childhood. He was the star football player. He was popular in school. He had a great home life. His parents were there for him. Oh, I forgot to mention, I said that his dad owned a phone company. And I said that was really ironic because the way he's caught. He made phone calls from phone booths in majority of the areas where crimes happened around the time of the crimes. Oh. Which, if your dad was in a phone company don't you think he'd realize like this can be tracked he was using a phone like a card you know that you can prepay a prepay mm-hmm. like so that was being tracked of where he was making calls from and they're always around the same time in the area of the crimes but it's like doy your dad worked for a phone company don't you know they can track all of this stuff <laughs> obviously dad didn't catch on and either did neither <laughs> did junior <laughs> yeah that reminds me of the um Lululemon murders with Brittany. She had a great home life too. She had, she, you know, she was an athlete, blah, blah, blah. And her problem was, of course, stealing and lying. But she too was very, felt very inferior to her brother and sister because they too became like lawyers and a doctor. Yeah. And his mom, in an interview I read, said something along the lines of he always struggled with that. He always struggled with being inferior to his sisters. Hmm. I mean, even as a kid, he always thought he was inferior to them. That's just that's just in his brain for some reason, though, because I don't. I'm don't sure it was. It's uh, sad, but what he did was horrible. Horrible, absolutely horrible. He is a very sick individual who will be in prison for life plus hundred something years. <laughs> so after he dies, another hundred and fifty years. And so he dies, and they bring him back to life. 
And they keep him in jail. <laughs> He'll probably die jail. again for another 150 something years. Yeah, because he got 90 and then he got 35. What is that? I'm terrible at math. 125. At all the resources I saw, he was life plus like 150 something. So I wonder if he had another trial that I didn't see. Well, after they found the DNA for those two murders, maybe they tried. I wonder again. if they just added on life or added on more time. But I mean, to save money for everybody, it's kind of like I know they want to get justice and they deserve justice. It's kind of like he's already in there for life. It's just closure for the families. Yeah. Sometimes I hate that word. Oh, true. Well, thank you. I thought that was really interesting. I was looking because I knew you wanted to cover Oregon because of our trip. And I was like, okay, what true crime is in Oregon? And then I was like, oh, a Green Bay Packer? (laughs) I got to cover this one. That's my little brother's favorite team. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't sound like he lasted long. So No, he didn't. All right. He didn't at all. Well, guess what I'm doing my paranormal of? I have no idea. (laughs) Really? Is it one of the places we visited? (laughs) I'm just going to be a broad spectrum type of person and do Astoria. Astoria. Okay. Well, then, yes, it's a place we visited. (laughs) Many years ago, I spoke to friends who had just come back from a trip to Astoria, and they are Goonie fans, as am I, Beth, and her siblings. I'm referring to the 1985 movie where a group of misfits take on an adventure to find a pirate's treasure. It's a great family movie. In fact, now my grandsons have fun watching it. Mm, The older one does not like it. The middle one will watch it again and again and again. The monster that likes the candy bars is his favorite part. That's his quote. (laughs) I like that monster guy. He likes candy like me. So yes, he does. Oh, I love that kid. I love all of them. (laughs) He's so funny, though. He just loves pirates, though. So Yes, he does. All right, so this is kind of where my drink comes in because the Goonies saying, never say die. <laughs> I just just put that together. I saw you. <laughs> it is a delay and it wasn't in the internet. <laughs> That's sad that I didn't put that together as soon as you told me the name of the freaking cocktail. I was wondering, but, you know. <laughs> oh, Beth. Oh. Anyway, so while in Astoria, our girls' trip, Beth, her sister Katie, my sister Chris, and me visited the Goonies sites. Now, Chris didn't really know what she was looking at at the time. She was like, (laughs) what's so big about this? That's cool. She's watched the movie since, though, hasn't she? She actually watched it last Friday. And so now she knows. She goes, now I know. And I saw all those things. It's really cool. (laughs) Yeah. I bet that's really cool, though, to watch a movie after you've been to that place. And they go, oh, yeah, I went to that park. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of fun. As much as I would love to, I'm not going to talk about our Goonies adventure, rather about the town of Astoria itself and its hauntings. Astoria is the oldest city in Oregon and the oldest American settlement west of the Rockies. Fort Astoria was established in 1811 as a fur trading post. Now, the steep hills of the town contain beautiful Victorian and craftsman homes. I mean, it is so cool driving across that bridge into the town, and on the hills are just these beautiful homes. Gorgeous homes. And the weather is just 
I mean, amazing. Well, we were there when it was amazing. So. Yeah, it was. It was perfect. Below the homes in the town are art galleries, restaurants, microbreweries, cafes. May I also add that Obi was with us the whole time, and we found the town to be very mm-hmm. dog-friendly and Obi to be very well-behaved. Just have to put that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your favorite child had to tag along with us, the only boy. Although quaint and fun now, the town has some pretty dark history. Astoria was surrounded on three sides by water. Well, it is surrounded on three sides by water and a lot of trees on the land. Houses and streets were built of wood and buildings stood on top of wooden piers. Thus, when the fire of 1883 started at the sawmill in town, it's no surprise that all the structures on Commercial Street were destroyed, about $2 million in damages. Then, in December 1922, Astoria suffered another fire. This one, much worse, destroying about 30 blocks, and the damage was estimated at hundreds of millions of dollars. Afraid of another damaging fire, tunnels were built under the town with fortified walls. Yes, there was still wood, but mostly concrete was holding the things up. Of course, there are truths and legends as to what the tunnels were used for. The tunnels ran beneath the shops. So, to me, it kind of made sense that they would be used to transport products from boats in the harbor to shops in the town without having to mess with pedestrian traffic. It's also known that these undergrounds were where Chinese families lived. According to a quote, the air in the tunnels smelled of incense, fish, and sewage. Along with the Chinese families, you also had the homeless and those that couldn't afford to live above ground. Now I'll go back to the tunnels in a little while, because of course, this is where the four of us did our paranormal investigation. (laughs) Waters around Astoria have claimed thousands of lives and shipwrecks. There have been unexplained deaths, fires, diseases, and murders. It's no wonder that at least five different investigative crews have visited Astoria, including Ghost Adventures and the YouTube sensation Twin Paranormal. Have you seen them? Oh, oh, and Killer Hangover podcast. We're quite the ghost hunters now. Killer Hangover. Okay, let me change that number to six. Six crews. (laughs) I just have to say that mom i know on here she sounds like such a skeptic i mean you guys have to back me up on that you should have seen this woman down there on our little ghost hunt and i know she'll get there later but she was all in it was well i was in because i really wanted something to happen (laughs) okay now that being gotta see it to believe it i guess now that being said let's look into some of the haunted places in astoria now we did not visit all these places mind you but we did visit the last two. Okay, the first one I'm going to talk about is the Upper Town Firefighters Museum. The building was originally built in 1895 as the North Pacific Brewing Company until probation. What? <laughs> until prohibition? Prohibition. Got that word. What did you call probation. it? Probation. <laughs> okay. The building was originally tiki. 
<laughs> the building was originally built in 1895 as the North Pacific Brewing Company until Prohibition. Then it became the Far West Milk Company, which made condensed milk until the building was converted in 1928 to a fire station and operated until 1960. It is thought that a fireman was killed in a fall as he was sliding down the fire pole in the 1920s. Now there are reports of sightings of that fireman, as well as the spirit of a sleepwalking fireman. Oh, no. Okay. Maybe you can explain this to me, but how can you tell how do they know that the ghost, the ghost is, sleepwalking? is sleepwalking? Oh. He looked like a zombie with his arms out. <laughs> how in the world do you know that somebody's sleepwalking if they're a spirit? That's a really good question because if somebody is really truly sleepwalking, it's hard to even know. That they're sleepwalking, right? Their eyes might even be open. Yeah, it looks like they're awake and doing like really weird things. But you, you can't like look at somebody and know that they're sleepwalking, let alone look at a ghost and know that they're Maybe sleepwalking. the ghost is doing really weird things. <laughs> I what don't What a story. Anyway, I have, what a story. I have to question that one. Okay. Police have... Uh, police. No, not police. People have reported... <laughs> <laughs> tiki, tiki, tiki. I'm going to say that every time you mess up. Because that tiki drink is getting to you. <laughs> People have reported lockers rattling by themselves, disembodied voices and footsteps and other eerie noises. Who knows? Maybe these spirits are still keeping an eye out for another town fire, except for the sleepwalker. He's sleeping through it all. <laughs> what a horrible way, though, to stay as a ghost. <laughs> sleepwalking. You're not only stuck here as a ghost, you're stuck asleep as a ghost well that's i don't think it's so bad because you don't know what's going on well that's weird <laughs> that whole thing is just weird <laughs> moving on to fort stevens and we were close to fort stevens in 1863 okay. during the civil war construction began on the fort but the war ended before the construction was finished good thing they were prepared <laughs> They were building the fort, and then the war the war ended. The war ended, and they're like, "Well, we're still building." <laughs> I'm sorry, that was not that was not that funny to me. That was really funny, though. <laughs> In 1884, the Army Corps of Engineers used the fort as a base for a while. Then, in 1896, the fort was looked as a looked at as a coastal defense position. Battery Russells, which is a concrete gun installation was added, and the fort construction was finally completed in 1904. Okay, I found this next thing to be really interesting. I had no idea. In World War II, in June 1941, the fort was attacked. Did you know a Japanese submarine fired 17 shells at the Battery Russell? No. I had no idea that the Japanese had come, I guess, this far. I don't I, I mean, I, of course, know Pearl Harbor. Why Oregon? Like, why Astoria? Like, I understand Pearl Harbor, but why? Well, there was the a submarine. There was there? that fort. I know, but it wasn't like it was some big, nice. You know what I mean? Like, they were just. What got them there? Right. What got them to that's, Oregon? That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. There was no damage to the fort, nor were there any lives lost due to the commander's orders of a blackout and no return fire. So 
He said, everything's blacked mm. out. Then he told them, you cannot fire back. We all have to sit here because if you fire back, they'll see our location. So basically, the Japanese were shooting aimlessly. These 17 missiles or whatever they were shooting was kind of an aimless shot. Shortly after the 17th shell, the submarine slipped back into the dark waters. That's just creepy. <laughs> it is creepy. The way you worded that was just creepy. Well, just imagine it. It's dark out there. Mom, stop. Short. Uh, okay. You can sit here and tell me about ghosts all day. You start talking about that stuff and I start to get really creeped out. We walked the beach of Fort Stevens, as I said before, and I don't think we saw or felt anything. Freedom. Freedom. Sorry. Freedom. It was great. <laughs> the beach was beautiful. It was. And just ran on the beach with Obi. Yep. It was lovely. It was great. But several paranormal reports have come from that area. Many people have reported seeing many orbs in the area of the Battery Russells. Then there's the story of campers who, although feeling that things were just not right, they did go ahead and pitch their tent near the fort. The campers were awakened by what sounds like boots crunching on rocks outside their tents. This lasted for most of the night. In the morning, they found odd-looking boot prints around their tents. No more camping that weekend for them. <laughs> they took off. Oh, wow. Another story. A man walked down the beach, like the same beach we were on, okay? A man was walking down that beach, sees a man in a strange-looking military uniform walking towards him. They pass and nod hello. When the man turned, the soldier was nowhere to be seen. The man returned to his hotel and started searching through a book of black-and-white photos. The book was dedicated to soldiers who had been stationed at the fort. He found a picture of the man he had passed on the beach. He had been a commander at Fort Stevens. Those stories are always so weird They're to me. Really weird. Okay, the next haunted site is the Liberty Theater. It was built in 1925, and artists such as Jack Benny, Guy Lombardo, and Duke Ellington have entertained there. A band was playing the night we ventured into the theater lobby. We snuck in. We, we did. We ventured and snuck in. Now, I have to admit, we did not run into the spirit of Handsome Paul. I looked. I did not see Handsome Paul at all. Are you saying Handsome yeah, That's Paul what he's called. Hanson? Handsome. Handsome Paul. Handsome Paul? Mm -hmm. hmm. Now, there, Who is he? There are many reports about him, people seeing Handsome Paul. He's dressed in dapper clothing as if for a night on the town. Now... There's also been sightings of an old woman and two men wearing top hats. How do they know his name is Paul? I'm still stuck on Handsome Paul. Because I think there was a man. I'm sorry. I'm not really. Did he like come out and say, hi, my name is Paul. And I'm handsome. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was a guy named Paul <laughs> something or another who would visit the theater quite often. And so they think it's him. Obviously, he was also very handsome. All right. That story wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. How do you think? <laughs> do you want me to say that he introduced himself as Handsome Paul? <laughs> Door knockings, door knobs, rattling, and footsteps have all been witnessed by patrons of the theater and staff, who many times have walked into the theater in the morning to find the popcorn and soda machines 
had been turned on during the night as the theater sat vacant. And they think it's the old lady. I also read that when they walk in, and, and this is right when they walk in, the machines will be going, and they'll see Handsome Paul and the old lady running away from the machines. That is fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is totally me, though, as a ghost. There's nothing better than theater popcorn. Now on to the two sites that we actually did go to. And Beth, I'm going to need your... We, did, we went to the theater. We went to the theater. We took a great picture in front of the theater. It's the only picture in the world that <laughs> Beth looks like she's got long legs. <laughs> I love that picture. I know you do. We all look so weird. Anyway. <laughs> the Flavel House. In, am I saying that right? Remember we were saying... No. <laughs> Flavel. The Flavel. Flavel. <laughs> I always called it the Flavel and then Beth said, it's Flavel. Okay. The Flavel. Flavel House was completed in 1886 as a retirement house for Captain George Flavel and his family. He lived there until his death in 1893 with his wife Mary and his two grown daughters, Nellie and Katie. The house remained in the family until 1934 when Patricia Flavel, George and Mary's great-granddaughter, gave the property to the city as a memorial to her family. The grounds and the house are beautiful, but sunlight hides some of the darker history of the house. Katie Flavel and her older sister Nellie were accomplished musicians and singers, having been brought up with music. Unfortunately, Katie contracted a disease and suffered for several years, wasting away until her death when she was 43. Oh, she died a horrible death. Yeah. All I remember was that they said that for medicine, they gave her... A sip of whiskey every night. Yeah, we saw that in the carriage house. There was like a doctor's note written for like a tablespoon of whiskey or something like that every night. Disembodied voices and phantom music, thought to be that of the Flavel daughters, Katie and Nellie, have been reported being heard on the first floor of the house. The library is said to be haunted by an unhappy presence while the second floor is reportedly inhabited by a woman who disappears once seen. Oh my gosh. Now I'm going to Sorry. I'm gonna, I'll get to I'm going to bring I'll get to my personal. Yes, I'm going to bring you into this Beth. Just settle down, just settle <laughs> I'm down. Sorry. She's hopping just, up and down okay, on her sorry. seat. One one of the Flavel's bedrooms is reported to have an ever-present floral scent, although no flowers are there. Now, I wish I'd known that before we went because I would have been sniffing every room. <laughs> looked crazy. <laughs> I don't smell no damn flowers. Okay. We did tour the, as I said, God. we did tour the Flavel house. And Beth, it's your turn. What did you feel? Because I didn't really feel much, but what did you feel? Okay. This is where I actually, listeners, I need your help. Because I feel like, I don't even know the word for it. I'm a sensitive. I can sense things. I don't know how to grow this gift properly, but I freaked myself out here at this house because we went to the house. We went by the house the first time because we had to go see the Goonies jail and the Goonies, the Jeep that was used in the Goonies movie with the bullet holes. It's really cool. Um, We had to go see that. Well, that's right across the street from the Flavel house. So as we were walking, 
uh, we walked around the Flavel house to look at the gardens because they are just beautiful. beautiful. So facing the house, I walked around to the right of the house and I was looking. I know nothing about this house. Keep that in mind when we first were by there. All I know is that mom was like, this house is supposed to be really haunted. And I was like, oh, well, we should go for a tour. That's all the conversation was. I didn't know anything about the history of this house. Nothing. So we're walking around the right side of the house and I'm kind of looking up into the windows because the house is beautiful and I wanted to see if you could kind of see into the house. So I'm looking into the windows and I couldn't see inside because obviously the glare of the glass, but I just felt a male presence and it was just like, I just felt like there was a guy there, like really angry that we were there, just not... I can't even describe it. I sound crazy. Some of you listeners are probably turning me off. And some of you hopefully are intrigued. <laughs> I cannot explain it to you. I really felt like there was just a really, I felt like he was an older guy and he just was not, just not a happy dude. Then we go and we look at the Goonies stuff. Well, then the next day we go and we go to the carriage house and we get tickets and we're now on the other side of the home. And again, I'm just kind of waiting. We were getting fed cheesecake by my Aunt Christine. <laughs> It's carrot cake, but <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm so sorry. Carrot cake. Uh, and I'm kind of looking at the house and I think it was you, it was you or Katie said, do you feel anything looking at this house? And I said, yeah, up there, I feel this is going to sound crazy, but I feel like there's a feminine energy up there. I see her. I, I feel like I can just see her sitting there in the window. Right. And that's it. Like that. I didn't know anything about anything. So we go in and literally that area that I saw the grumpy old guy was the library mm -hmm. and later doing research into it. That's the area, as you just said, where a, an angry man presence mm -hmm. is seen or captured or whatever, which is just so weird that I felt that before I even knew anything about that, before I knew anything about it. And then sure enough, up in that top window where I said I felt a feminine presence in the window, the literal description in that window is, I, it wasn't Katie, it was the other sister. Um, she, what was her name? It was Nellie. Nellie. Uh, she would sit in her window and air dry her hair. That's right. Yeah. I'm not saying that that was Nellie sitting in the window. I'm not saying that I saw these spirits. I just think that that's really weird that on the side of the house where the library is, I felt a a masculine, not a very happy energy. And then on the other side, I felt a very feminine energy up top. I just thought that was really, really strange. Inside the house when we were getting the tour, I don't know. I felt something kind of in the library, like something was there, but not necessarily like haunting Well, it there. was pretty dark. The yeah. library was really dark. It was very dark in there. And I'm not saying that there are ghosts there. I feel like they're just these energies of these mm -hmm. people there. Katie died a terrible death. I think just that energy of her suffering and it was just a very feminine energy upstairs. But it's not like I felt a ghost or I saw a ghost. Mm -mm. But that was just that was my personal experience. And I kind of freaked myself out. So that's why I wanted help from you guys. If anybody out there can kind of help me with this, I'd really like to do more of this because it really intrigued me that I was spot on with <laughs> my feelings. I thought that was really weird. OK, I'm done tooting my own horn. All right, I saved the tunnels for last because we did tour them and we did a little investigation of our own. Like Beth said in the beginning, a video of this is or has been posted for our Patreon. 
If you watch Ghost Adventures, you'll be familiar with their four-part series, Graveyard of the Pacific, Season 19. In Episode 2, the crew investigates the tunnels. They head to the underground by way of Gully's Butcher Shop, owned by Diana Gully. Beth spoke to Diana to get tickets for the tour and asked if we could have some uh, little extra time to explore after the tour. I mean, <laughs> we are a killer hangover. <laughs> she agreed and had one suggestion. Get a drink before the tour at Blaylock's Whiskey Bar. Great idea. But with four women and one bathroom, time was a little issue. I was ready. <laughs> we arrived at the bar with about 40 minutes to spare. The bar was very popular, so by the time we got seated and served, we had about six minutes to drink our cocktails and run to the butcher shop. And these are crafted cocktails. Crafted so it's not like they cocktail. were taking their sweet time making these cocktails. I mean, these were intense. Yeah. These were beautiful these were artistic not rum creations. And, rum and Coke. These, these no. were... Take your time and craft each and every one of these cocktails. They were beautiful. And I'm sure they were good, but. <laughs> Mine was tasty. I knew we were going to have a short time. So I got like this cucumber mule. So it was light. Yeah, and easy to and drink. It was tasty. Yeah. The rest of us. Oh, Very my gosh. Tasty. Katie ordered a drink. That was on fire. That was on fire. <laughs> and I had, I had the spiciest drink in the. She bar a spicy drink <laughs> all guzzling our drinks man i'm just like okay my stomach's on fire right now uh but we made it to the tour luckily because gully's was right literally around the corner back at the butcher shop our guide for the night was drew a true believer we were led down the stairs to the first room abigail's living quarters which also housed an extremely terrifying motion-censored clown that stood about six and a half feet tall and was the exact match to the clown in the movie and book It by Stephen King. It was horrible. Ugh. It was horrible. I mean, that got our hearts and adrenaline totally pumping. Uh, this, this thing would, oh, oh. anyway, I'm not going to think about it. So Abigail was a seamstress who lived alone and worked in the tunnel. Diana initially had her office in this first room we entered, but after many unexplained and eerie things happening, like knocking and the door opening and banging shut, and this door was heavy, super mm -hmm. heavy, it so it's not like air could have done this, which was creepy. She also heard footsteps and disembodied voices. Well, she moved her office to her home. She's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> we all had been given EMF readers. And none were really lighting up in Abigail's apartment and in her sewing space. It felt a little heavy, but, you know, nothing really to speak of except for that damn clown. Anyway, we found out later that Abigail had committed suicide down there and her body was not found for a week. So there was some probably some sad residual energy down there. Walking into the next part of the tunnel, we were introduced to Walter. No real history on him, but in this... No, not at all. <laughs> I don't know where... We don't know Handsome Paul, and we don't know where Walter came don't from. Don't know where Walter came from. But in this area, our EMF readers did light up. Walter supposedly likes the ladies. 
He made this pretty obvious by flirting with ladies on the tour. Chris's EMF kept lighting up, although she had no idea why. (laughs) (laughs) Then Katie's reader, and eventually Katie's, Beth's, and mine. As we headed further into the tunnel, Beth felt a tap on her buttock. (laughs) Oh, boy. Was it Walter? Well, it certainly wasn't any of us or anyone else in the tour. Thinking, I am still not convinced. And thinking I about really it, think it was that Katie. would have been even more disturbing if somebody else in the tour had tapped her <laughs> butt. <laughs> it wasn't. It was literally just like this very light tap. I mean, I jumped because I felt it. And I was like, Katie, you, you would you touch my butt? And she's like, what? No. <laughs> well, she was behind you, but she wasn't. She her Both of her hands were full. <laughs> With my butt. <laughs> Oh, no. Don't you blame your sister. She didn't do anything. Out of nowhere, as we were still at one end of the tunnel, another motion-censored clown started moving and chuckling. The problem was that there was no one down there. And when we were by the clown, it didn't go off. Yeah, that was weird. I mean, that was, and this happened throughout the time that we were down there. We have flashlights, but otherwise it's dark back, dark down there. Especially in the corner that the clown was hanging Yeah, the in. clown was hanging in this corner. Now, he wasn't as big as the first one, thank God, but he was scary looking. And he was hanging there, and he would just randomly just go off. But then when you stood in front of him, he didn't even move. Just weird. And these are... These are props that they use because they do, they do do, (laughs) do do, fun, like Halloween stuff. So this is just the props from their Halloween Right. So they left it there. Yeah. Kind of to add to the mystique of the room too. But also I have to add here that they have all kinds of cool, cool treasures that they have found, you know, cleaning up the tunnels. I mean, these old Mm -hmm. books and these old records and... it was really amazing to see those things. Yeah, you can see you can see some pictures of these on our Patreon video, but there's like an old washing machine, like a super old washing machine. There's an old cigarette machine, an old old telephone. There I mean there's there's a ton there's of really a bunch neat of stuff. It was old stuff that down was there. really interesting. Okay, now we're on now we're at the end of these this room where the clown is and there's one small room where previous investigators have got activity now beth declined going in there but what the heck katie and i did well hold on drew drew gave a description of like uh i don't really want to go in here there's a lot of dark feelings in here this is really dark and i'm just like "Eh, if it's really that dark i don't really know if i want to go in okay but you know the skeptic me says and I'm going in. Oh, she was the first one in there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going in. Katie went in too. Now, this is no exaggeration. It did not take long before I felt a heaviness that I can't describe. It was just, yeah, a heaviness. (laughs) Beth, I know that you felt it before too. I don't know how you can even describe that feeling. It feels like somebody's almost sitting on your chest. Like you can't really take a full breath well at first it didn't feel like that but after a little while then it did it just all kind of gathered on my chest and I had trouble breathing I mean I was taking Mm -hmm. short breaths because I could not fill my lungs it was the weirdest 
the weirdest thing. And then I became lightheaded and I had to push myself out of the room and instantly, boom, I felt better. It was, Hmm. it was just, it was weird. Now, did I get talked into feeling this way because the tour guide had stated other people felt that way? Or did I really feel something dark in that room? I don't know. Our EMF, I think Katie's EMF reader went off, but you know, to this day, did was it psychological or was there really something there? Yeah, because when I walked in, I didn't feel anything in there. Not, I'm not taking away from your feelings at all. You could have very easily felt something, but I, I didn't when I walked in there. Now, moving on to Amy's room, I'm pretty sure that they called it Amy's room. Is supposedly a little girl's spirit lives in this room. Her name was, I think, Amy. People have put toys all over the room, on shelves, on chairs, on the floor. There were some really scary dolls in that room. Yes, very scary dolls. Oh my gosh, there was one that was turned upside down in the lap of another one. And I'm like, Drew, why is this doll turned around? Oh, well, the last group, it really was freaking people out. So I had to turn it around. I'm like, okay, how can this doll freak anybody out? Oh my God, that was the scariest dang doll I've ever Mom seen. Mom turned it around and we freaked out. I was like, put it back. It was just weird. Oh my gosh, it was so scary. I mean, the eyes were just drill into you and, the, and it was a little doll. It wasn't a big doll. But it was like, oh, that, no, oh, this weird. just needs to stay upside down. Oh my gosh, that was so that was the scariest thing in that room. Anyway, this is the room where during the episode of Ghost Adventures, Zach took a seat in the old chair in the middle of the room and started shaking. Chris sat in the chair. Nothing happened. Then I sat. <laughs> Nothing at first. But then I got a really strong sensation that someone was behind me. You know how you just feel like mm-hmm. you can't explain it, but there's someone behind you. It was so strong that I would have sworn to the group that there was a person there, but not a little girl, a man. The guide and Beth walked to the back of the room to investigate. But then without a shred of doubt, I told them he's gone because then, yep. then I sat in the chair and I was just this totally peaceful emotion and sensation just ran through me. And I just sat in the, I could have sat in the chair without a problem. The rest of the night, the chair was comfortable. And there was like, then there was nothing. And even Beth said, I don't feel anything in this room. Nothing. Anything in this room. Mm -mm. I never did. But I think as we were leaving that room is if I had to sum up this whole experience down in the tunnels, I think what we experienced next was the most paranormal. Yes, definitely. Okay, so this happened on the back side of Amy's room in another chamber. And this was the area from which I felt the presence when I was sitting in the chair. The group was far ahead of us, and Beth and I were kind of lagging behind, trying to stay well away from the stupid clown, but also (laughs) talking, you know, to the spirits and trying to get the EMF readers to go off. And as we're meandering towards the group, we both, help me describe this, it was a knock or it sounded sort of like a pebble falling or something. It wasn't real loud. It wasn't like a huge loud knock. It was a very small knock or like I said, a pebble falling to the ground or something. But we both 
whipped around and looked in the same direction. And Beth is like, did you so, hear that? Yeah. So try to picture this like really long rectangular room. And then the rectangular room is cut in half by kind of like a very small doorway, like a partition. So on one side of the room is going to be the little girl's room where we didn't feel anything. So when mom was sitting in the chair, her back would be to that middle partition. And she felt like there was a man there. And when we were coming out of the little girl's room, we'd had to walk down this hallway. So now you're kind of facing the other side of that long rectangular room. And we were just going to walk by. I, I don't even think the tour headed into that other mm-hmm. There was part nothing of that to rectangular see. Yeah. room. There's like some really old water things back there. Like it, there was really nothing back there. So we're walking past it and we heard what sounded like a pebble. I think mm-hmm. that would be the best. Yeah. And at first we were like, did you hear that? And are we going to take that seriously? So we turned our EMF recorders and I started to walk back there. And you're right. It was a very masculine feeling that I got back there, but we were like, uh, you know, is anybody here? We're trying to get a reaction on our EMF Well, at readers. first we're, we're like, something. was it the pipes? I mean, come on, let's debunk this thing. This wasn't anything. And then, exactly. and then Beth is like, okay, if there really is somebody here, you make another noise. Nothing happened. Nothing. So we turned around to walk towards the group. Boom. Same exact sound. The exact same noise. And it's not just like a little tap. It was like a, like a, like it, it was an intentional like yeah. double tap yeah. or it, it was an, it was an intentional noise. Very, very, very much so. And it happened three times total, didn't it? And it was every time we were walking by or about to leave. Happened three or four times. And, and it was yeah. every time that Beth and I turned our back to that far back wall. Every time we turned our back, it happened. And it was just. Yeah, which in that back corner just really gave me an uncomfortable feeling. Like not uncomfortable as if I thought I was going to get hurt or anything. It was just like there's definitely something back there. I just couldn't something pinpoint there. what it was. And it was just so weird that it happened. It didn't happen as we were staring at the dang wall. It happened when we turned or even our back. asking it. And so we told Drew about it and he said, well, maybe it wants you to go back into the little girl's room, which we ended up doing later on. But we still just never got anything in that room. No. Whatever it was, was in the other on the other side of the partition. It was on the other side of that wall. Yeah. But didn't he say one of the investigative groups that were down there uh, saw a shadow figure down there or something around that area? In a doorway around that area. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, that was that was pretty that was pretty interesting, actually. That was probably the most paranormal yes. activity we had on that tour. Yeah. I can't say really besides some of the eerie feelings and some of the some of the EMF readings that anything else happened while we were down there. But it sure was a lot of fun. It was it was an awesome, awesome tour. Drew, if you're listening, you were amazing. We're so thankful for the extra time that you gave us. It was it was really neat. It was really fun. If you guys are in Astoria, I highly recommend it. It was very well done. Yes. And and we left safe just in case. We were sprayed with sage. And I didn't realize it. But yes, sage comes in a little liquid form and you can spray it. I didn't know that either. Spray it on (laughs) you. And yes, a big thanks to uh, Diana and Drew 
for the great tour and extra time in the tunnel. And as Beth said, if you go to Astoria, you have to you have to do the underground tunnel visit. I mean, honestly, I've been on investigations before, but like mom's an amateur. Like you can do this. Like it's not like you have to be some Zach Bagans. Like you can no. I, uh, do that. I Anybody am an am- amateur. Prove to me. <laughs> so that is my Astoria and your Astoria. <laughs> we had so much stinking fun. We need to do more ghost tours like that, though. That was so much fun. We have to grab Chris and Katie to go with. You know, Katie, I don't know if she's going to get mad at me for saying this on the podcast, but she didn't sleep well that night. She was really bothered afterwards. That's right. And it's not like crazy things happened. It's not like all these really crazy things happened. But I do think Katie is a sensitive, if not like me, more than me. She she was affected, I think, by something. She she didn't sleep very well that night. I remember that afterwards. Now. She kept having weird dreams about the tunnels, mm. which I thought was really interesting. She didn't get, she didn't get enough of that liquid sage. <laughs> oh, I always leave every investigation. I've never done the sage. I I want to invest in some of that, but I leave every investigation. And be like, okay, see ya. You're not coming home with me. <laughs> You are to stay here. Yeah. Bye-bye. Oh, fun stuff. Fun stuff. Great episode, Mom. So in two weeks, you will be covering... Shoot, you picked it. California. California. Yep. That is right. Staying on the West Coast. As always, you can find us on all the socials. Check us out, Killer Hangover Podcast. Email us. Get in touch with us. If you know of how I can just, I, I just want to know more about my gift. If you have any recommendations or maybe you have the same thing, email me, Facebook us, Instagram us, whatever. Chat with us. We're also on YouTube and TikTok. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Yes. And special thanks to our patrons. You guys have gotten a lot of really fun stuff recently. So I hope, I hope we've done you good. <laughs> But we are really, really thankful for you all. Really, really, really. Okay, kiddo. All right, mama. Cheers, mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.